0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. Joined tonight by my co-host, Matt DeMere. Matt, what's going on?
1: Oh, you know, just braving the, the winter elements in southeast Michigan.
0: Yeah, I uh, we we were talking a little bit before the podcast, but uh, they were expecting about a foot or so in Columbus. And for reasons outside of my control, I had to go to a uh, part of western Pennsylvania that is not going to get hit too terribly hard. And fortunately, uh, it hasn't got hit hard at all. So knock on uh, various things in my vicinity. We hope everyone listening to this podcast, I know our listeners tend to be in the area of the country that got hammered uh, by the snowstorm. Hope you all are doing OK. Hope you all uh, get to... Uh, Maybe get a day off of work or something like that, or day off of school or something like that, whatever that is. But regardless, we're not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk about Penn State football. Uh, today's episode of the podcast, we're going to do the season recap that we haven't fully gotten a chance to do. We're not going to do a big, long breakdown of the season. Just hand out a couple of awards, talk about a couple of general things, that sort of thing. Do an early 2022 preview and get to the mailbag section of, uh, of this week's pod. But before we do that, we're recording this one day after National Signing Day. Penn State had most of its business all finished up heading in to national Signing Day, but two things ended up happening uh, that were of note for Penn Staters. One uh, was junior college safety Tyrese Mills of Lackawanna, a program that has produced some pretty good safeties for the Nittany Lions, uh, was officially able to sign uh, his letter of intent to join this class. And then out of nowhere, Penn State was able to pick up a commitment from a three-star offensive lineman from Washington in the name of Vega Ione, a big fella, really fun tape to watch. We will talk about him in a second, uh, but as a result, the Nittany Lions uh, solidified their standings, the number six class in the country, number two class in the Big Ten. Uh, Matt, we don't have to do the big recruiting stuff. We hit most of that when the early signing period started. So we'll start with the easy thing. Uh, For folks listening who might not know, what was it that kept Tyrese Mills from joining this class and what has gotten it and what's happened so that he is now able to, uh, able to join the Nittany Lions.
1: So it's actually, it's a pretty simple explanation. So I, I couldn't tell you exactly when this rule changed, but, um, as part of the kind of overall overall overhaul of the recruiting calendar and rules and, and scholarship limits and everything else that every school abides by, um, anyone who signs a letter of intent with the program is an initial counter. And that just means um, that 25 limit that you hear about every year, that's initial counters. And that now includes what typically include transfers and anyone, uh, any new recruit that joins the program, obviously because of COVID and things like that, they've adjusted those rules for the last couple of years, but typically you have 25 initial counters per class. And what changed in the last few years is, Once you sign that letter of intent, you count towards that 25-player limit. Regardless of whether you ultimately enroll and qualify and play a game, you are counting towards that 25-player limit. So in Tyrese Mills' case, um, there were some potential concerns about academically qualifying. And so rather than have him sign in December, they asked him to hold off until February just to make sure that all those ducks were in a row before they used one of those 25-slots on him just to ensure that he was actually going to end up enrolling at Penn State. Um, Obviously that's not a given until he shows up on campus, but uh, by all accounts, those sorts of things have been taken care of and that allowed him to sign his letter on Wednesday rather than uh, back in December with the other 23 members of the class.
0: Yeah. And you watch a little bit of his tape, Matt, and I, I haven't gotten a chance to really dive in on him as I have other guys in the class, but the little bits that I've seen, it's really hard to watch. I, I, I hate putting this kind of expectation on any kid, uh, especially one coming from junior college, because not, you don't necessarily know how that stuff is going to translate. Uh, you know, I thought Paris Palmer was going to be a freaking nature, neither here nor there. Uh, but you watch his tape, and he does look like the kind of safety, you know, I don't think Lackawanna goes out and tries to get the exact same kind of safety uh, whenever they get a player. But he seems to be in that mold of a Jaquan Brisker, of a Jair Brown. You know, time will tell if he could produce like them, but he seems like the kind of guy who's going to go out there and if it clicks for him, he's going to be the latest big play-making safety that the Nittany Lions are able to get from Lackawanna.
1: Yeah, I think one of the big questions is if he ultimately sticks at safety. He's a little bit bigger, um, a little bit um, physically, you know, just some different physical traits than both, either Brisker or Brown. Um So there's some thought that he could ultimately settle in at linebacker long term just based on some of those things that he does better versus some some limitations in his just general ability. Um, The other unique thing is um, because of he enrolled at Lackawanna in 2020. So because of that, he's also eligible for that COVID bonus year if he accepts elects to use it ultimately after his normal, uh, eligibility would expire. So he actually has four years to play three, if he were to take advantage of that year. So the two important things are there are one, he has a potential to play three years in state college and two, he has a redshirt year available. Um, whether he ultimately takes that red shirt, um, uh, will be kind of interesting to follow because as we all know, there's, um, some potential depth concerns at safety and linebacker, so depending on when he ultimately arrives on campus, the earliest that would be would be uh, May for the first summer session or potentially in June for the second summer session. Um, but it'll be a matter of kind of where he's at, you know, what's the depth chart looks like at that ultimate position he starts at um, and how quickly he acclimates to to Big Ten football. Um, but I think he's you, you talked about you mentioned Paris Palmer and some of the the. Kind of boomer bust nature of JUCO recruiting. I think safety is one of those positions where it's probably a little bit easier to evaluate exactly how yeah. that's going to translate. It's just it's not that it's not physically demanding, but the the strength and athleticism that you are really looking for in an offensive tackle, for example, um, is h- easier to or easier to hide, harder to, to find, um, and, and truly evaluate. Much like it is evaluating a high school lineman, just because of there's such a wide range of of um opposition you're going up against whereas in a position like safety or cornerback for example um it's much easier to evaluate because the, the kinds of traits you look for aren't necessarily reliant on the quality of the opposition you're looking for things like you know speed tackling ability um you know ability to change directions hips hip action that sort of thing um so i think it's it's a, not a matter of, of whether he's able to contribute or not. I think the question is more how quickly he's able to and where that ultimately happens.
0: Uh, yeah. According to, uh, Lackawanna site mills, six one two hundred and five. Matt mentioned his physical profile a little bit and how, uh, he, th- there might be a little flexibility in where he could play at the collegiate level. Uh, when it comes to physical profiles, Matt, uh, Penn state got a very fun one in Vega Yone, six foot four, 320 pound, uh, offensive lineman. Uh, he played tackle, uh, left tackle in high school. Uh, we'll see where he projects 24 seven has him ranked as an interior offensive lineman, a three-star, but I believe, uh, one of the recruiting guys out in the West coast said that he, it, he just missed out on getting a fourth star, uh, if he was able to participate in the Polynesian Bowl, he might have been able to get that fourth star. But Matt, you—I I hate you know—I hate saying that stuff comes out of left field in recruiting because it is exceedingly rare for a thing to be to literally happen just breakneck pace. There are usually seeds planted. It's usually years and years of work. Even if you come in on a kid late, you know, I think of a kid like a Taquan Hardy, who got a Penn State offer late and committed late. But Penn State had seen him, Penn State had been in communication with him, and it was basically just a matter of what they offer. This is legitimately a case of most of Penn State's staff probably did not know who this kid was until a couple of weeks ago, or probably did not know who he was beyond maybe seeing his name on a spreadsheet until a couple of weeks ago. And now he is a member of Penn State's class and seems like he could not be more excited about being in any line. So what the hell happened here?
1: So I think it's kind of a, just a perfect storm of events. So he was committed to Washington um, up until um, their their coaching staff over and decommitted when that all happened, when Jimmy Lake was let go. Um, kind of let the dust settle, and there was a lot of speculation once uh, the new Husky coaching staff was in place that he was going to recommit to to Washington. They kept his offensive line coach. He's from the Seattle area, big family. Um, you know, just it kind of made sense he was going to stick close to home. Um, especially once uh, Washington didn't change anything along the offensive line from a coaching staff standpoint. But with Joe Lorig heading to Oregon as a special teams coach and Stacey Collins joining, um, Collins is kind of almost, I don't want to say he's the impetus for um, kind of jump-starting this recruitment because it was, you know, certainly he was involved. Taylor Stubblefield, who's from Washington, is, was involved. And obviously Phil his as his position coach was involved. But I think, Colin's arrival and having a bit of a relationship, knowing about him, kind of allowed Penn State to get their foot in the door a little bit more. Um, offered him just a couple weeks ago, we um, were able to get him on campus the last uh, weekend before signing day and you know, have him meet the coaching staff. They had a junior day that day, so there were um, several current 2023 commitments on campus. Plus, you have the early enrollees that have um, been on campus now for about a month. Um it all just kind of fell into place. Um, he's a really interesting prospect from the level, from a regard of um, he I don't want to say he was a sleeper like you mentioned. Um, he's really um, kind of a, a diamond in the rough. The people out west that have been able to watch him are really impressed. I think one of the things that hurt him, and this was alluded to by um, Brandon Huffman, who's one of the Pacific Northwest guys for twenty four seven sports. Mentioned that he, like a lot of us put on a bit of bad weight during COVID and has really worked hard on his own to really transform his body over the last 12 months for his senior year, which I think really allowed him to, to take off and, and, uh, increase his profile as far as a division one prospect, um, by all accounts, a really hardworking kid, um, uh, class president, I believe at his high school. I think I saw someone tweet out on Wednesday, um, just kind of a a, a perfect storm. Uh, he actually committed during James Franklin's press conference on Wednesday, um, and James was uh, pretty effusive in his praise for him. He's a guy that they think can contribute pretty early in his career potentially. Um, I'm really fascinated to see what happens with um, with his development physically. Um, it was alluded to, you know, obviously transforming his body, but he's done that really on his own. He doesn't like a lot of high school players doesn't have um, access to the kind of strength and conditioning, nutrition program like you'll have at Penn State and like most most colleges have. Um, but really fascinating to see how how quickly he develops kind of that next level of physicality and strength that just about every high school lineman is going to need. So I, when when we say he's you know could potentially contribute early, that doesn't mean he's going to come in and play as a freshman. But I think he's one of those kids that after 12 months, you know, depending on how quickly things click for him. Um, you could potentially see him working his way into the depth chart after, uh, after that first year on campus. Yeah, I, I find
0: it a little bit funny. Franklin said uh, during his press conference on Wednesday, the more I find out about him, the more I like him, which is a very funny thing to say about a kid who commits to your uh, recruiting class. Uh, but yes, you were right. was a member of a state championship team. Franklin did say uh, physically has the opportunity to come in and compete early on. Uh, and then I want to read this quote directly. Um, I was shocked a lot of time. Uh, this is a quote by Franklin. I was shocked. A lot of times you see guys on film and you're not really sure what they're going to look like in person. He showed up here and he was 336 pounds and carried it as well as anybody I'd ever seen. Probably looked like he was 295 and you look at his athleticism on tape and how quick his feet were and how light he was on his feet. Just really impressed. And Matt, you know, in the lead up to him, uh committing I did watch a little bit of his tape and seeing that number seeing 336 next to his name shocked me seeing 320 next to his name shocked me because you watch this kid and that quote from Franklin about him looking like he's about 295 is 100% true. He is a really, um, you could tell he's big and physical and powerful, but he does carry that weight. Well, the way that he moves as a big man, big man, as someone who, uh, you watch him and his offensive line, offensive coordinator, offensive line coach did a really good job teaching him how to pull as an offensive lineman. It's actually quite funny watching what he does when he has to fire off the line of scrimmage to go find someone. Like he's he's a heat-seeking missile as an offensive lineman. It's it's quite interesting. Uh I, I'm excited for him, Matt. Like I and I'm not just saying this because we've just had so much whiplash with how quickly this is all happening, but he does seem like the kind of kid who is going to do something uh, at Penn State.
1: Yeah, I think he's kind of emblematic to me of kind of the change in philosophy that Phil Troutwine's brought in as far as the type of player they want to recruit. Um, And and the proof will be in the pudding in, in two or three years, if not sooner about how this is going to pan out, but it's a ooh, very ooh, different...
0: Ooh, brother, uh, you saying that Phil, Phil Troutline might get another two or three years as Penn State's offensive line coach is going to get some people mad, even if I agree with you.
1: Well, whether he's here coaching or not, I think the, the the success or failure of his methodology in recruiting, I think, is we won't know for a couple years at least, regardless of who gets to coach them when they get here. Uh, but he, he's recruiting, to, to your point, bigger, just more physically imposing type of players by and large. Whereas a lot of the kids that it, this isn't in a, a blanket statement by any means, but for the most part, the, the kids that Matt Limegrove recruited were more um, it seemed like a, a developmental, you know, big frames, but they didn't have that that natural um, size quite yet. They, they could add that weight. It was a question of, you know, how quickly they would, what type of athleticism they would maintain when they got there. For the most part, Troutwine has brought in more naturally big kids that already have kind of started to to, to put that weight on that carry it well, um, and again wh- whether it works out or not we'll we'll see it it will take a couple years to determine that but it's um, I think a a a sign of just his philosophy of offensive line play and development versus what the program had had over the first uh, six or seven years of James Franklin's tenure here.
0: Uh, yeah. And our, our, pal Greg pickle over at on three um, did a really good piece on him that I, I felt old reading it because apparently uh, one of the first college football games, if not the first college football game he ever watched when he was in middle or high school uh, was Penn State beating Washington in the 2017, I believe, Fiesta Bowl. Uh, so, yep, yeah, sit with that. Those are the, the, that. That's how old recruits are now. Uh, let's move on uh, and talk about Penn State's 2021 20, season. I mean, we're far enough away from the season that I think that We don't need to do big, uh, elaborate breakdown of the year or anything like that. Uh, But there are a couple of awards I want to hand out. Uh, We're going to give grades for the season and then kind of give our big, general, overarching thoughts on the year. And Matt, I want to start with handing out the team's MVP award. I'm making you pick one person. I am going to make myself pick one person. Uh, What I'm going to say is that I am not going to pick the person that you pick because I'm going to make that a rule. And then we do game of the year in a second. Uh, you are not allowed to pick the game that I pick. So go ahead. Who is your Penn state team MVP this season?
1: Well, since I get the first draft pick on this one, um, I'm going to go with the layup and Jahan Dodson. Um, it's just, I do think there are other candidates. I think there's a couple of guys in the defensive side of the ball that you can make an argument for. Um, but we saw it all year that as Penn state's offense went as Jahan, Jahan Dodson went and every team for the most part knew that. And he still put up numbers, you know, the 91 catches, 11, almost 1200 yards. um, How many touchdowns did he end up with? I covered that up. 12 touchdowns. Um, You have the definition of a number one receiver, a guy that you know is going to get the ball in key moments and he still gets the ball and makes plays. Every team in the country um, that played Penn state knew, he was the guy in offense you had to stop. And for the most part, no one could stop him. So uh, th- that's a layup. So good luck to you on this one, Bill. I, I mean, it, it, uh, this isn't going to be too hard for me because I, I, in large
0: part, because I figured, you know, he's going to say Jahan Dotson. Uh, so I am going to give it to Jaquan Brisker. Uh, for me, it's a coin flip between Jaquan Brisker and Jair Brown. If I want to pick either, I think Penn State's safety play this season uh, really was. Phenomenal, and I thought the two of them. You you looked at this Penn State team. The one thing that Penn State's defense did, ex- like they were very good at a lot of things. The one thing that I think they did above everything else, extremely well, was they did not let big plays happen with any sort of consistency. It was ex- you, you know you think of the kind the big plays that really killed them this season. Uh, the one that I go right to is the late touchdown against. Uh, I mean, by Michigan, that kind of sealed that one for the Wolverines. That happens on a crossing route by a tight end where guys bump into each other. It wasn't a lot of Penn State getting beaten over the top, and once the field got intense, Penn State's defense was very good at keeping you from getting much of anything against them. And I think a big reason why is Jaquan Brisker. His ability... As a cover man, his ability to, whether it's manning someone up, whether it's playing zone and kind of playing deep safety, his ability to tackle and make hits and make big plays. And, you know, I go right to that Wisconsin game and think, you know, late in that game, for how bad of a day Wisconsin had, they were driving against that Penn State defense uh, down 16 to 10, had the football, uh, it looked like they might have the opportunity to win that game, to go ahead, go up 17 16, get Camp Randall really rocking. Fourth and goal from the Penn State eight. What happens? Graham Mertz drops back, Jaquan Brisker makes a stellar play to pick that one off. Uh Wisconsin ends up getting the ball back. Uh, and you know, then Jair Brown comes in. He's the other guy I really strongly considered here. But I think it has to be Brisker, Matt. I mean, he's he just did so many good things for Penn state this season. Uh, I will give you a chance to take one honorable mention. Um, it could, again, it could be on offense. If you pick someone on offense, sure. Uh, or it could be someone on defense or it could be someone on special teams. Who are you giving it to?
1: I'll go with uh, Arnold Abakete. I think um, certainly his, his numbers speak for themselves and, and how um, impactful he was. On the defensive side of the ball, but I think his ability to to draw attention from opposition opened things up for guys like um, Derek Tangelo, um, the host of other ends that rotated opposite him. And I think once PJ Mustafer went out, um, I kind of expected him to, to for Ebikete to take a bit of a step back, just because he, he's the next obvious guy on that defensive line that you're going to try and plan around if Mustafa's not in there. And he, if anything, uh, increased his level of play. His production went up that second half of the year as kind of the focal point of the defensive line. So, um, you know, it was a a frequent question or comment during the year. You know, where would Penn State be without him last year? Uh, Obviously, they bring him in as a transfer. um, And he, you know, was, was every bit as impactful as I think Penn State could have hoped for and some.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I... More or less, pick Jair Brown for mine, so I won't give that. uh, You know,
1: uh,
0: hat tips to guys like Jesse Lukita, who I he did stuff this season I did not know he could do, and apparently uh, now he's down at the senior bowl getting some praise, which is really great for him. And then uh, Jordan Stout as a punter and kickoff man was superb, you know, had his troubles with field goals, either here nor there. Uh, Game of the year. Uh, to me, Matt, this, you you could basically pick two games for this, unless you want to pick a Penn State, if you want to pick a Penn State loss and say like, you know, the game against Ohio State was a good game. The game against Iowa was a good, whatever you want to say, God bless you. But for me, I have to go with Auburn. I mean, I, I I didn't get to go to that game. I watched that game from uh, a bar in Boston, Massachusetts, and that was, that was to me, how do I want to phrase this? I I was going to say the thesis statement for what Penn State's offense could be under Mike Yurcich, uh, but that's not totally right because Penn State wasn't really able to run the ball particularly well in that game. Um, but Penn State's offense, the way that sh- just the guy that Sean Clifford looked like, he looked like the kind of you know I'll compare it to Kenny Pickett he looked like Kenny Pickett in that he looked like a guy who has been in college football for years and years and at this point he's seen everything and it's just going to click for him all the stuff about the most confident quarterback in the country coming in the environment like I it's partly because I just hadn't seen a game with fans at Beaver Stadium in quite a while but that seemed like as raucous a whiteout as we have had the fact that Penn State's you know, Sean Clifford didn't have an incompletion in the second half. Uh, Penn State's defense comes up huge on multiple occasions to end that football game. Uh, just a really fun football game. It was one of the best games of the year, and I'm a you know I'm I'm glad that I did get to watch it with a bunch of Penn State fans. Uh, but I'm really happy that uh, you know. I'm really upset that I didn't get a chance to actually go to the game. So I, I took the obvious one here. What are you going to pick?
1: Well, I think the, the, the runner up is the Wisconsin game. Um, and I, I think it's kind of emblematic of Penn state season in a sense, you know, a little bit in reverse, I guess, uh, you know, obviously with the second half being kind of the, the quote unquote offensive explosion. Um, but I think, at the time and the way Wisconsin started the season at what, I think one in three, if my memory's right with um, really the only win coming against, um, you know, a a layup, but Wisconsin is always going to be, you you know, what Wisconsin is year in, year out. Um, And they, and they turned it around and and finished with a pretty strong second half of the season. Um, I think they won, ended up winning eight or nine games ultimately after that, that dreadful start. Um, And so I think regardless of, of where they, where that program was when Penn state played them a win against Wisconsin in camp Randall. Um, and then you add in the, you know, first, first game with fans in, in almost two years and you're doing it in probably one of the two or three toughest places to play in the big 10. Um, that that's a big win. And I think it really set the stage for Penn state's first half of the season up until that, that early second quarter, Sean Clifford hit at Iowa. Um, and so it's you know if you're not going up, Auburn to your point you know there, there's really only a couple of games that I think really make sense to to get that game of the year tripe treatment unless you're gonna like you said talk about either games where that were were entertaining and close in and in defeat or just absolutely hilarious with nine overtimes. I
0: we have different definitions of hilarious. Uh, let's you know we've we've kind of talked about a couple of things that have made us happy. Uh, let's go to a thing that's a little bit more negative here uh and let's give penn state's team a grade for the season give it an overall grade uh, as a reminder than any lines went seven and six on the season four and five in big 10 play obviously matt that requires a decent amount of context but to the best of our abilities what would you grade this season for penn state
1: i'd probably go c minus ish maybe d plus um and we'll talk about it here in a minute, but they were, you saw so much promise over the first half of the year. And we always knew that there were a couple spots where Penn state just could absolutely not afford a major injury. Like they ended up having Deshaun Sean Clifford against Iowa and the impact that had really for the next two or three weeks. Um, but at the same time, issues independent of, of, of injured quarterback play, the offensive line never really put it together. The running game never really put it together. Um, you know, post injury, the passing game was inconsistent at best. And given, I think, where where the expectations were after the first month of the season, especially coming off of the the way they finished the twenty twenty season, albeit against um, you know, we'll say the bottom half of the Big Ten. There was so much excitement and optimism that was realized over those first three weeks, especially with the win against Indi- or uh, Wisconsin and then Auburn a couple weeks later, and then getting through Indiana and going to the Iowa game, a top five matchup, and the way they started, and just the way they really just completely fell apart the second half of the season, um, especially on offense. Um, and I think the, the issues that were more prevalent during that second half of the season were already there. I mean, the, the running game never really got on track even when Clifford was healthy. Um, there was inconsistent offensive line play even before Sean Clifford took that, that hit. Um, the tight end play was inconsistent at best. Um, all those issues were there, but they became so much more magnified. Um, and, you know, it, even as great as the defense was, which I think might be the reason why I tend more toward C versus D you know the you look at the 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 Michigan game, yes, you know it was two players running into each other, but they couldn't close out a lead late at home um the Michigan State game they give up thirty one points um you know in a, in a blizzard that you know it it just felt like after the first five or six weeks, everything just kind of fell apart and I think that speaks to coaching it speaks to leadership, it speaks to talent development and all sorts of other things um but i i it's mean you know, a 7 and 6 season you are what your record says you are and, and 7 and 6 is pretty average and i think a c is a pretty average c minus is a pretty average grade
0: yeah i'm inclined to agree uh with that i i i did have the thought uh while you were uh while you were speaking just like i wonder how we view this season uh, in its totality, if, uh, if if Auburn is able to beat Alabama at the end of the year, they just managed to uh, miss out on doing that. Uh, Penn State uh, just worth mentioning, twentieth in SP plus. So there's a good football team in there. I like the, one thing. I, I fully believe there was a good football team in this Penn State team. We're going to hear that at the draft in a few months when. Jahan Dotson is going to go in the first round. Arnold Ebequete maybe goes in the first round. Uh, let's see, Jaquan Brisker maybe goes in the first round. Brandon Smith is going to go in the first couple of rounds. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, and I'm going to feel really bad about it. Uh, but there was a lot of talent on this Penn State team. So I am inclined to agree with you, Matt, that it is a C-. Um I think when you look at what this team was and what this team had the potential to be, you know, they were the number four team in the country at one point, man. They walked in to Kinnick with a four next to their names. And, you know, maybe if, you know, if Brenton Strange catches one more pass, uh, if, you know, even beyond all the stuff about how Taquan Roberson struggles, if one guy on offense, not saying just Strange, if, any other number of guys on offense make one more play and Penn State walks out of that game 27-23 or something like that. Uh, maybe they don't go into that Illinois game a couple weeks later, uh, feeling still licking their wounds, and they're able to win that game. The rest of their games, that Ohio State game turned on a defensive touchdown. Michigan was a four-point loss. Michigan State was a three-point loss, and James Franklin said Uh, At his press conference the other day, I think most people would say very obviously we were really close last year. We were very, very close at one point ranked number four in the country and doing some really good things. But I think it's also a great example where depth is so important, where development is so important because injuries are going to play a factor in college football across the board. Depth is important. Some things going your way are important as well. And then obviously continuing to build from an offensive, defensive, and special team scheme perspective, all of it. Uh, I'll ask you about that quote in a second, Matt. But yeah, I think just generally, I think just generally, um, when you look at that Penn State team, the issues that they caused, the issues that they caused themselves uh, with things like player development, where that player development happened, with some of the issues they had on their roster, with how they had to prioritize things, uh like basically giving every snap to Sean Clifford in the lead up to the season. There were some self-inflicted wounds. There were some wounds that they just, things that they just ended up getting really unlucky about. And it's a C-minus that if one or two passes, you know, one or two more passes get completed against Iowa or against Illinois or against Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, maybe we're talking about a different team, but... It was a frustrating year. I think at the end of the day, it was a very frustrating year. And when we talk about our big general thoughts on this past season, I think that James Franklin quote is uh, something of a Rorschach test for how you're going. I, I how you view it is that sort of thing. If you look at that and you could very easily say, I think, Matt, Look at all of the excuses James Franklin is making. Uh, Really close, uh, rank number four. Well, it's Penn State's fault that they lost some of those games. It is, you know, Penn State's been talking about making this jump to elite, and it just hasn't happened, and it is their fault that they have not made it. And then that second part is just look at him, excuse, 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 excuse. The other, per, other side of that is you do look at that, and yes, J- James Franklin is right about they were very close. The issues that they had with depth and development were things that just are matters of luck or matters of putting guys in positions a little bit too early. He is correct in his assessment of things, and... I am inclined to agree with him. I think when I look at the big overarching things from this Penn State season, that quote sums up a lot of how I think of it. What do you think, just in general, about this Penn State season and Franklin's kind of assessment of it?
1: I think I agree about 98%. Um, It's, for me, not very hard to look at four losses, four of the six losses by I think a combined total of twelve points or something like that. You know, my math might be off by a point or two. Um, but that's that's one or two plays in four games that if they swing the other way, then you know, Penn State's um you know looking at ten or eleven wins. Um and I think you can even make a case that a couple of those games, primarily the Iowa and the Illinois games, that if if the one player they they knew going into the season they could not afford to lose, Sean Clifford, doesn't crack a rib or whatever the injury was. We'll we'll probably never know unless someone lets it lets it slip out at some point. Um, the, that Iowa game and that Illinois game probably aren't even that close. You know you don't you don't count them in that one score litmus test that that we tend to do. Um, that's two wins right there. Um, you know the Michigan State game was a close game that I think um, is probably in my opinion, at least the one game where I think you can really chalk it up to, to coaching and, and decisions that were made, you know, they were, I I think the weather, you know, impacted not to rehash that whole game, but they were moving the ball so easily through the air that, and they got, got away from it so fast, but they were still there at the end, you know, a four point loss. Um, you know, that could have gone either way. Um, they were four points away from, and two players running into each other away from beating the big 10 champion and, and playoff team in Michigan. Um, and
0: I think a thing worth mentioning is that what was it in that Michigan game? Their first like two drives, they get down into uh, the red zone and walk away with zero points or something like just whatever. Like they, they, I I get what you were saying. Don't get me wrong. I completely agree uh, with what you were saying, but uh you know, you look at it and Penn state got down first drive. They end up uh, settling for a field goal after uh, you know having a third and four on Michigan's 15. And then of course there's that drive that uh, they get down to Michigan's two and decide the best play is to like have Jordan Stout run the ball.
1: And and I don't mean to say that, that there weren't individual decisions right. within that right. game, but, but despite that they're, they're up 17, 14 with two minutes to play at home. And I I think, I guess that the overall point I'm getting at, and I think where I really agree with James Franklin is that the their margin for error. I think the margin for error for the vast majority of teams in college football, especially that are just below that Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson, you know, elite elite level. And whether you want to argue if Penn State's there or not, I think up until uh, the end, you know, when when COVID kind of unraveled things two years ago. Um, they were right right in the middle of, of that next tier of teams and they've certainly fallen back. But Michigan fans twelve months ago were having this discussion and some coming off a two and four season where Jim Harbaugh blew up his coaching staff. I think he brought in six new assistants. Um, and, you know, they certainly got waxed against Georgia, but they were, you know, a couple plays against Michigan State away from going through the regular season undefeated and winning the Big Ten. Am I saying Penn State's going to go back and do that next year? You know, that's you know, we'll find out. Would, sure would, would State... It would be nice. I, I think we can all agree we would enjoy that. But look at you know Michigan's season. You know, they narrow win against Wisconsin or uh, Nebraska. Narrow win against Penn State. That there were a couple plays in those games that if they go the other way, they're sitting at nine and three instead of eleven and one. And so my point being that that margin for error for that tier of teams that isn't at the Ohio State Alabama level Georgia is so razor thin that in Penn State's case an injury to your starting quarterback at a point where your quarterback depth chart just isn't what it was a couple years ago and that's true of so many programs that the the injury you couldn't afford to happen happened at the worst possible time and you didn't have you your backup just clearly was, was not capable of playing at a Big Ten level. Your third-string quarterback at that point hadn't taken a live snap in a football game in over two years. So, you know, it's just, a, again, a perfect storm in that razor-thin margin, you fall on the wrong side of it. You know, you your players run into each other against Michigan, wrong side of it. Um, just so many things that if, if they break just a little bit differently, um, are we talking about a, a Big Ten championship playoff team? Probably not, but we're talking about a 9- or 10-win team which feels a heck of a lot different than a seven-win team.
0: Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. It's a thing that uh, I have said uh, a few times to you, Matt, and I might have mentioned it uh, on the pod uh, a time or two, but I think kind of the general overarching thing for this football season for Penn State is it really showed – how much more narrow the margins are for Penn State than they are for uh, a team like a Michigan, a team like an Ohio State. You know that that in the good, great, elite, blah 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 thing uh, that everyone always goes back to. Ultimately, the thing that makes you elite in college football is to have elite talent and elite talent behind your elite talent. Uh, if Stetson Bennett got hurt on Georgia's. Uh, march to the national title they have an X5 star coming in if you know they played that uh basically that entire season uh without George Pickens their stud uh wide receiver who was out for uh, much of the year and only came back at the very end of things and they were still able to have a functional passing game in that regard I'm not saying Penn State is trying to get to Georgia's level immediately. It's a thing that takes a whole lot of time. It's a thing that takes a whole lot of money, as Georgia has shown us. But it's something that the Nittany Lions, you know, just have to deal with and have to, uh, you know, have to respond to. I, You know, I don't think James Franklin has made it, been shy about saying that, that he, the program needs more, more, more to get to that point. Uh, but... Other programs aren't seeing their defense, I don't want to say fall apart, but get super, super gassed uh, because against a team like Iowa because one defensive tackle gets hurt. And then a couple weeks later, they don't have that defensive tackle and they just can't stop Illinois from snap from running the football for six yards a pop. Or seeing their offense stop, just like completely stop because their quarterback... Uh, their starting quarterback had to spend the entire offseason getting every single snap because they hadn't had a you know this was his third offense in 3 years and you have to get him up to speed above everything else or uh you know the the transfer left guard that you take from Harvard doesn't work out the way that you hope he does uh oh well that stinks Also, he's your best option at that position without having to burn a true freshman's redshirt. So, like, it's all that stuff. And that's the big takeaway that I have from this season. Now, do you widen those margins with better coaching, with better player development, with better identification of players? Do uh, you—identification of players in the transfer portal, in recruiting, whatever. That's definitely part of it. Do you get those margins better by being able to convince players— of a higher caliber to come to your school by, you know, everyone wants to talk about facilities, facilities, facilities. I kind of hate how the word facilities have taken over your Matt, because infrastructure is probably the correct thing, whether that is physical infrastructure or as Franklin pretty strongly alluded to uh, in his uh, press conference the other day, you know, NIL is a thing that Every single football program, every single athletic department has to take advantage of. And being the one that gets it down first is going to be a huge, huge advantage. Getting, you know, putting the money into having support staff. So, you know, it's a point that you've made. You have an extra couple of people on your recruiting team who could help build relationships with players, who could help identify players, that sort of thing. You bring them in fine. You give mo- have more money for a sister. It's like all those sorts of things, in addition to the stuff that James Franklin directly can control and does have to get better at, admittedly. So that's just where my brain has been on this season. Um, we got to couple of mailbag questions we'll get to them in a second but I want to start with a uh question that we got uh from uh Jamie lucas uh, if I mispronounce any names no I apologize and I love you dearly uh Jamie wants to know earliest expectations for the 2022 season and I think that goes really well into an early 2022 preview Matt where we're basically just gonna ask three questions biggest strength biggest cause for concern and whether or not Franklin is on any sort of a uh I don't want to say hot seat but like has he is the seat warmer on what where you could tell it's on but it might not be doing anything we'll get to that in a second but as you look ahead to 2022 Matt what do you think Penn State's biggest strength is going to be
1: that's a much harder question this year than it was going into or going into next year as it was coming coming into this year well well can that i made push no back sense. can i can i push back a little bit cuz i know Absolutely. I, I think everyone knows what you're saying Going
0: into 2021, what were the two things that everyone thought were going to be the biggest strengths for Penn State other than its secondary? It was the running back room, it was the tight end room, and I think we can agree those were two of the weakest points on Penn State's team. So it's a hindsight 2020 thing, uh, but but it's just like I think an interesting thing to make note of that even if something seems obvious in either direction that doesn't necessarily mean it is going to come to be.
1: Oh, for sure. I, I think my my bigger point was that there isn't really that obvious answer like there was last year. And obviously the obvious answers ended up being incorrect. Um, but I think it, it's the reason, one of the reasons I like college football so much, I think so many of us do, is you know we look at Penn State's roster and there's weaknesses at, not necessarily weaknesses, but uncertainty at wide receiver. There's uncertainty at running back all of a sudden. Defensive line, you know, basically all over the field. I think Penn State's biggest strength, to answer the question, is probably at cornerback, where they have a ton of depth that has played really well um, over the last two or three seasons. Um, but I think the bigger point that I'm trying to make is that we're going to see some strengths emerge over the spring and summer in the next season. As some of these young guys that have started to get their feet wet a little bit start to develop, you know, can defensive tackle go from a question mark outside of PJ Mustafer to a strength with guys like Devon Ellis and Keziah Izard and some of the other guys that they're continuing continuing to develop? Um, with Adisa Isaac coming back at defensive end, um, can his will he get back to where he was prior to his injury? And will well, some of those guys, um, like Smith Filbert or Zariah Fisher, just to name, name a couple, will they start to emerge? And you have questions like that all over the roster, which I think is really fascinating. And you know, th- the question is, that we won't know the answer to for seven or eight months still, is how will those positions develop over these crucial months in the weight room, on the practice field, during seven-on-seven drills over the summer, that sort of thing. Um, but I think the biggest strength, You know, on paper right now really has to be cornerback just because there's so many big questions to be answered basically everywhere else on the roster. So I will go with the passing game because
0: I think that Sean Clifford, if he's able to stay upright and healthy and he's able to kind of keep his wits about him, is going to be able to have a nice season. Um and then when you look at the receiving talent that Penn State has, Parker Washington, sixty-four catches, eight hundred and twenty yards, four touchdowns. Keandre Lambert Smith, thirty-four, five, twenty-one, three. Those are really nice numbers for a second and third, uh, for a second and third receiver. You look at the tight ends. Uh, I'm not going, certainly not going to hype them up like they were heading into this past season, but combined, thirty-nine receptions for Brenton Strange and Theo Johnson. The two combined for. Uh, something in the realm, I, I think 438 yards and four touchdowns, which is a, a nice number for a tight end room. It's not dominant or anything like that, but it, it, it's a good output. And, you know, saying Mitchell Tinsley's number is 87, 1,400, is a bit, uh, you know, has a bit of an asterisk because of how um, – because of how air-raidy Western Kentucky's offense is. But you're bringing him in, and he's a dog. He's a really talented football player. Then you look at who they have coming into this recruiting class. Caden Saunders seems like a guy who has the potential to play right away. They're very high on guys like Omari Evans, like Anthony Ivey. What they do with Makai Flowers, we'll see. Uh, Tyler Johnson, they're high on. And then some of the talent that they have in the room that hasn't gotten a chance to really contribute yet. Liam Clifford. Uh, Malik, Mega, Harrison, Wallace are the three that my mind goes right to, and I think they, I think they are starting to understand, or, or we're starting to see form like a really potentially dangerous passing game, and I'm excited about that. If they can get it uh, to all work together and kind of figure out a couple of things uh, with keeping Clifford upright and getting his brain. To a place where he is back to being one of the most confident quarterbacks in the country. Uh, biggest
1: cause for concern, Matt, because uh, I can think of a few of them. Well, I think the the biggest individual specific cause for concern is just the offensive line. You know, it's been since forever basically that it's been a question mark. It got demonstrably worse. In, in 2021 versus where it was coming into the year, especially when I think a lot of us expected it to be a potential strength. Um, so I think until proven otherwise, that's that's a massive cause for concern. But I think from a bigger picture standpoint, it's some of the things I was just mentioning. There's just so many question marks all over the field. How do they replace Jahan Dodson's production? How do they find a running game? Who starts next to Jair Brown at safety? you know, what's the defensive line going to look like, especially at defensive end, where they really don't have a lot of returning production. Um, defensive tackle, maybe not as much with P.J. Mustafer. There's basically no depth at linebacker, um, you know, b- beyond Curtis Jacobs, and um, that's about it. If you look at the roster, as far as guys who have played any significant numbers of snaps. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's it'd be foolish to say that None of those are going to be answered in a positive manner. I think history has shown, um, not just at Penn State but all over college football, that um, you know this is part of the cycle. You know, you re- you lose guys and you replace them as some of these young guys that you've brought in continue to develop. You know, they take on bigger roles. Um, you know, guys that played as reserves last year start or take on bigger, you know, more significant roles as reserves in in 2022. Um, but I think it's also would be foolish to say that everything is going to be answered. Um, there are going to be, there, there are holes on the roster. It's just the nature of college football, um, pending additions to the transfer portal and things like that. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's anything that's, um, you know, red warning lights going off or anything like that. I think, um, to your point, you know, th- there's a lot of returning town, a lot of these places too. It's a matter of putting it all together more consistently than we saw this year. And that's up to, you know, players and coaches and, and the entire program to figure out how you do that. Um, but I think there's just, there are so many uncertainties that um, it's really hard to, to put a finger on, you know, really what this Penn State team is going to be when they kick off against Purdue in a few months. Uh, one question we got from
0: uh, Devin was uh, just linebackers, and that's my answer. Uh, so let's move on to any warmth on Frank Seed at all, and will there be if next year's team uh, doesn't clear a certain bar. Um, I'm inclined to say no, I just for pure financial purposes. Like I don't think Penn state, if they come out next season, uh, lose to Purdue, lose to Auburn, lose to Michigan, uh, and lose to all, uh, Purdue Auburn and Michigan, uh, and then find themselves sitting at three and three or anything like that. Like, I don't think Franklin's just in any trouble. Uh, I think that if they if he was going to be in any sort of trouble, uh, they probably wouldn't would have given themselves a couple more outs in that contract. Um but I do think if Penn State next season finds itself in a position where you know, Purdue, Auburn, Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State losing a bowl, they're seven and six again, they have the same record in Big 10 play, then yeah, like I think you're just inherently going to start asking what direction does this guy have the program going in? And there will be some context to that uh, if they start, if they decide to turn the reins over to Drew Aller for the last four years, the game year games of the year, and he wins all of them. Uh, if they, if just the young guys end up usurping a bunch of the older guys, and they end the year on that kind of a high note, I think that does kind of change some things. And change how we view some of the older guys in this program uh but as of in in terms of going into the season like i just don't think there is going to be any sort of um we'll we'll say anything from the people wearing suits at alma mater uh that is going to leave james franklin under any sort of concern
1: yeah i think that last part's the 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 critical part you don't sign a guy um to the, the contract that they did if you don't expect to have some level of patience um, if things don't go, you know, ten or eleven wins. I, I don't know what that, that theoretical threshold is to um, to a- appease people that think he should be on the hot seat. I um, mean, there'll certainly be social media uproar. There's always social media uproar about something or another. Um, I think you'll see, you know, if if that theoretical seven and six season happens again that you outlined, Bill. If if something like that happens again, you'll have people writing columns and. And national speculation. But I think from from a big picture, is James Franklin going to be in jeopardy of losing his job at Penn State? Then then that's an easy answer of no. I think the the more concerning signs would be if, you know, if those those young players they brought in don't you don't see signs of development. Um, and that that's that's more of a long term thing that's a that's you know a twenty twenty two twenty twenty three type thing with a lot of those guys um If you see recruiting start to fall off, and I know that you know um you know that there's there's uncertainty in recruiting, but you know stars matter that whole debate if if Penn State starts falling back into the teens or twenties in recruiting classes, then I think that's when you have to start raising eyebrows because that means that that you're falling behind um you know Ohio State's always going to recruit like Ohio State. Michigan has done an unbelievable job capitalizing the playoff appearance with the way they've recruited. Um, Michigan State started to recruit better. They're still you know, relying on the transfer portal to a, a large degree, but they've supplemented that with some really good high school players. Um, the, the, if, if you're falling back in recruiting, the gap is growing from where you want to be, and I think that is probably a more concerning sign long-term. And along with that, Penn State just signed the number six recruiting class off of a, what's it, four and five and seven and six season. So I think that the the contract, I think, will help with recruiting. I think Penn State's relatively recent history will help with recruiting and, keep, and basically replenishing that talent level. Um, and I think, you know, from a, a 2022 hot seat standpoint, I just don't think there really is. Uh, much to, to talk about there from a, a, a people who matter standpoint. Uh, b- before we do in the mailbag, who's the player you're most excited to watch next season?
0: It's <sighs> bringing this on you real quick, but
1: I'm going to say probably I'll go Nick Singleton. Cause I think, mm. and, and I'm going to qualify that with, I'm not sure we even saw it with Saquon Barkley that he didn't, wasn't the guy right away, but I think, it's hard to look at the talent he has and what Penn state has on the roster currently at running back and not expect them to figure this out and and allow a guy that just has it. You watch him and he just has that, that it factor at running back. I think a guy like that can really help cover up some holes in an offensive line. He's, He's going to be able to take advantage of smaller holes. He's going to be able to make guys miss somewhat in a way like Saquon Barkley did, um, you know, turn that two yard loss into a four yard gain kind of thing. Um, Nick Singleton, I think is that kind of, of talent, whether we see it right away, but I'm excited to see what a guy that is really, you know, and this is no, no offense to the guys at running back currently on the roster, but a guy who I think is just a step more talented than them and what a guy like that can do for an offensive line and really an offense as a whole by taking some pressure off of the passing game and, and this blocking up front. They don't have to be a hundred percent perfect because they have a guy who can help mask some of that.
0: Yeah. That, that, that's a great answer. I thought you were going to say Parker Washington, just like candidly. Can I
1: know? almost did. Yeah.
0: So I, I, I'm going to say Jair Brown just cause like I like watching him play football, but you know, I'm going to give a, a, a nod here to Adisa Isaac as well, because if he, you know, if it, Whatever he suffered, if he is able to come back from it and be a really good football player, I, I think that's just going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, let's move into the mailbag, and we'll start with a question from uh, Nick Ferraco, who has a hypothetical for us, Matt. You get to go to the college football national championship game. Penn State plays who in your dream scenario, and what's the tailgate me- meal you bring for good luck
1: and good vibes? I, I saw this question when it popped up on Twitter from Nick. I think I want to go Georgia just because some of the history of Penn State and Georgia in, in de facto national championship games in in the program's history, and um, obviously two of the most tradition-filled programs in, in the history of the sport. Um, I've always been a simple tailgate guy. G- give me some some good burgers, hot dogs, and brats, and, and I'm good, and obviously some cold beer. I So when I saw this question, like, I struggle to pick a team
0: because I want it to be whoever the big dog is, like whoever the program is that kind of defines the era of college football. Uh, If it's still Alabama, I want it to be Alabama. If Georgia unseats them, I want it to be Georgia. If Ohio State unseats them, I want it to be Ohio State or USC or Clemson or whoever just – whoever the final boss at the end of the video game that is college football is – I want it to be them. And I know that sounds like a simple answer, which is because it kind of comes off as like, I just want them to play the number one seed. No, I want them to play the team who, the team who, when you try to think of excellence in college football, your brain goes right to me. So right now I'll say Alabama. Uh, we'll, we'll go with Alabama. And then my tailgate meal, uh, I am bringing Rolling Rock. Uh, Justin Maluski wants to know favorite Batman movie? Um, it, it, here, here's the part where I say I don't really watch superhero movies, uh, but. Matt, uh, do, do you have a preferred Batman film?
1: I have no idea, like what the 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 masses say about this, but I always like uh, uh, Batman Begins, the first of the the Christian Bale trio or uh, whatever. I, yeah, I, that, that, yeah. we'll go with that. That seems like a good answer, I think. Right?
0: I, I mean, I I was going to go with The Dark Knight because that's. That is legi- also a good one. That is legitimately, I think, the only Batman movie that I've seen that wasn't just like on in the background when I was a kid. I will say, "Kiss from a Rose," good song. Uh, Justin, thoughts on Iowa's week? Um, <laughs> Iowa. For <laughs> those, those who are my thoughts. <laughs> for for those who don't know, Iowa uh, talked a lot of junk and invited Penn State in uh, to the Bryce. Uh, invited them into Carver Hawkeye. For a wrestling duel, and Penn State went out there and uh, ended up winning the damn thing. Uh, it, it was a really impressive performance by uh, the Nittany Lions. Uh, Max Dean was the guy who put the put the. Uh, exclamation point on the thing it was really 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 uh fun duel to watch even though matt i know you and i are not particularly huge wrestling guys uh but always like watching penn state when they're going up in one of those really big duels uh and then basketball walked into the bryce jordan center uh and learned that nobody walks out of the bryce jordan center with an easy win uh the nittany lions took down iowa 90 to 86 and double overtime penn state did a really ad- even though we ended up having a Good game. Really admirable job against Iowa star Keegan Murray. Uh, If not for uh, some hot shooting by uh, Connor and Patrick McCaffrey, Penn State, I think probably very well might run away with that one. John Hara, 19 points, 10 rebounds, uh, a career-high in scoring. Seth Lundy pitched in 17, Greg Lee, 16 off of the bench, um, Matt summed up his thoughts. I generally agree with them. Uh, I will say though, uh, Iowa women's basketball, while they lost to Ohio State earlier this week, their star Caitlin Clark forty three seven and four. If you get a chance to turn on an Iowa women's basketball game to watch Caitlin Clark, like there's re- like she is one of the most fun c- basketball players, uh, men's or women in the country. Like, she she's stellar. And tonight uh, they beat Wisconsin with eighty four to fifty with Clark going for 27 11 and. Eleven. Uh, moving on, question from Matt, three-parter from our friend Matt Foreman. First up, Matt, is using a pellet grill cheating when it comes to smoking meat?
1: I have no idea, so I'm going to defer to either you or I'm going to have to Google this and, and see what uh, what the online world says. I have literally no idea what to say. Well,
0: it, it, it's not a proper smoker, but it is a, it is a grill that has, like, a thing on the side that you can put uh, wood chips into and smoke that way. So like, I I don't, I don't consider it cheating. Like I'm, I'm also like, I also don't own a grill. So I'm a very bad person to ask, uh, this question to. Uh, his second question, do you believe there will be an actual QB competition, uh, for 2022? James Franklin said, uh, Sean Clifford is the gap, you know, he's going in, he is the starter, obviously the starter, but I think his direct quote was he was, he used that franklin line of we compete and compete in everything you do um what what did you what do you think man what did you think about him using that line because my guess is we're going to be on the same wavelength here and we don't i don't want to say we're dismissing franklin out of hand uh but there's a little context that needs there will be context that comes with that
1: I, I think if you're talking about you know two guys getting equal snaps and a you know coaches sit down in their their office you know halfway through or two thirds of the way through training camp and decide who their starting quarterback is, that's not going to happen. I think, barring some catastrophic event, either injury or just a complete fall off in play, Sean Clifford's the starting quarterback in West Lafayette on September whatever. Um, with that said, I think because of of Clifford's experience and because of the youth of the quarterback room. And I think because of where they found themselves a year ago, um, you're going to see drew Aller, Bo Prabula and Christian value get a huge majority of the snaps, especially in the spring. Um, you know, Sean Clifford doesn't need any more practice reps in this offense. He, I, I think we can all agree. He, he, he knows the offense, um, He's not going to sit out by any means, but I think this is a, a true opportunity for them to let these young kids get the bulk of the reps, get experience, especially the freshmen, um, knowing that they've got a guy who doesn't need those reps. Now, I will say, I think going into the season that, um, and I I always hesitate when when people are, or question when people say, you know, Franklin doesn't you know won't pull Sean Clifford. He's pulled him twice in the last two years. Um, you know, in Nebraska in 2020 and he he didn't start the next game, um, and got pulled from the, the Rutgers game. And obviously there were extenuating circumstances there, but I, I I want to th- believe, and maybe this is just naive on my part that with, with a guy like Drew Aller, I think he's not going to come out and say it, but they know what they've got that they know they've got the number one quarterback in the country by just about every ranking or, or among the top quarterbacks in the country. A, the kind of talent they haven't had at that position in a long, long time—just um, natural arm talent, natural—you um, know everything you look for physically from a quarterback. Um, they know what they've got there, and I think if Drew Aller takes the steps that I think fans expect, and the coaching staff, in an honest moment, would say they expect, I think that leash gets a lot shorter. And I think if you know, if they go into, I don't know, we remember the byfalls, the schedule change, but if they're, you know, three and two after that first month and Drew Aller has shown in practice that he's, you know, he's ready. I think, I think that competition continues into the season and the more experience, the more time in the program Drew Aller has, the shorter that leash gets and the more of a true competition it becomes, especially if, if Penn State is, is sitting at three and two or, or four and two at some point, you know, halfway through the season, give or take.
0: Uh, they play five games, then a bye, then they go to Ann Arbor. So, so
1: I, th- um, I think that bye week, especially knowing that you've got, um, well, you've got certainly Purdue and Auburn before that. I think Ohio State's before the bye. After. I think that. Okay, everything at, got moved. At, I, don't, yeah, I don't know more. Anything uh, sc-
0: the schedule oh. next season at Purdue, Ohio, at Auburn, Central Michigan, Northwestern bye, at Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio State, at Indiana, Maryland, at Rutgers, Michigan State.
1: So I, I I'm not changing my answer, but I yeah. I think knowing that Michigan comes right after the bye, I'm not sure that um Drew Aller's first collegiate start comes in, in Ann Arbor in the big house, even without Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajabo. But um I, I I think that for those first five games, you know, the de facto first half of the season, um you know, it's kind of a good point to kind of reevaluate things and and see how Clifford has performed as a starter, and see where your your young kids are behind them, and and, and where the if there is a gap and how big it is.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm inclined to agree with that. I, I think that I think that the best thing that can happen is an open competition for his backup, um, for Clifford's backup, uh, and that one where one where someone is just clear cut better than everybody else, uh, and then going into. Uh, Going into fall ball or summer camp, sorry, uh, they put some heat on Clifford. I, I think that there's going to be competition that they're going to foster an environment. Uh, I think in terms of ability to win, I'll put it this way. In terms of Clifford's ability to win the competition, I think it's going to be like a basketball game where he has a 50 point head start. Uh, which means it's possible that in that 48 minutes he loses. It's just going to be very, 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 very unlikely and will take a confluence of events that just seems improbable. I, I think that's probably the safest way I would put it, but... I, I do think that they're going to want someone to push Clifford because they that they just inherently want that. That's the environment they want around this program. Uh, and then the last question from Matt, uh, does Christian Pulisic need to leave Chelsea for him to be in an optimal form for the U.S.? I will take this one, Matt. He should go to Napoli. Uh, moving on to a question from Teddy Tate, favorite bourbon distillery. Now, Matt, you are more of a fan of the brown... Like, not that I dislike the brown stuff. I just trust you more on this, uh, and I will say the distillery that you and I went to in Columbus one time
1: that was quite nice. And I don't remember the name of it,
0: but I, I, the, the four is yours in this scenario.
1: Um, uh, all bourbon is good. Well, not all bourbon, but most bourbon is good. And the right answer is Buffalo trace, you know, Buffalo trace plantons, Eagle rare, um, Van Winkle. They've just the, the depth and, and variety that that Buffalo trace has is, is, uh, is tough to match in my opinion.
0: And then we will end with the soccer questions that we got. First one from the fridge: Would you rather James Franklin coach the USMNT or Greg Burhalter coach Penn State football? This is a question like specifically for Matt, as a Columbus Crew, USMNT, and Penn State football fan. So, Matt, <laughs> uh,
1: where, where 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 do you land on this? I I don't know how to answer this, but I, I found myself thinking that they're both very similar in, in similar spots. They're, they're bald.
0: They're... we 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 know what you mean. They're both
1: bald. Exactly. But I, I think guys that maybe aren't as, as elite as maybe they think they are, but also much, much better than their critics say they are. But I, I don't know. I don't know who I'd rather have coach which team. I, uh, I, I'm, I was yeah. trying to think of a joke answer for this, you know, James Franklin, you know, time management in soccer or something, but I, I couldn't quite put it all together.
0: What I will say is that I, uh, I'm i not the biggest Greg fan in the world, and I do quite like Franklin, so uh, I would rather him coaching uh, the USMNT. I suppose. Uh, Brian Rich, goals on set pieces. A good thing. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the United States men's national team beat Honduras last night. 3-0 uh, in, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. The U.S. scored all three goals on set pieces. Uh, I, I think that those last three words... Uh, in that first half of that question are kind of uh, immaterial because the important thing is goals and they got goals. Uh, so Matt, do you have anything to add to that?
1: I like when the U S scores goals,
0: same uh, cool guy, Tony with the final question that we will ask here. Let's melt this together. What are big, what big 10 teams are their CONCACAF equivalent? And Matt, I put thought into this, uh, which is a rare thing for this podcast. Uh, I, I, did you put any thought into this, or did you not answer this, and you just punted to me because you knew I would take this too
1: seriously? I, I figured this was teed up perfectly for Perfect. you, Bill, so I'm going to give you the floor. All
0: right, we're going to go bottom to top of uh, current World Cup qualifying standings. Honduras is Rutgers, uh, because Honduras is not good. I don't think I need much explanation of that. So we will move on to Jamaica, who I would compare to Nebraska. Uh, and Nebraska, uh, entered this season with a lot of hype, a lot of excitement, and they just weren't able to do much of anything with that. Uh, and, uh, Jamaica entered World Cup qualifying with a lot of excitement because the, uh, the They were entered with a lot of excitement because they were able to get uh, a star striker uh, from West Ham named Mikael Antonio to play for them. Uh, They were able to get a couple of other players, uh, it just escapes me who they are, uh, but things just hadn't quite gone their way. And Jamaica is currently eliminated from the World Cup. Uh, El Salvador, I just put them in the Maryland, Illinois, and Etc. class of Uh, world soccer uh, of the Big Ten. Like, you know, they're there. They vibe. They might do something good every once in a while, but generally, no, not really. Uh, Getting into the slightly more serious ones. Costa Rica, I put as Iowa, and this is purely because I went to a game in two thousand and 17 where uh costa rica beat the united states and ever since then i've just found them very annoying uh and they usually have a great defense because they have a great keeper named kelor navas who just does uh really spectacular things back there even if they don't always score and when they do score it's it, it can seem like an accident uh matt any major things that pop into your brain with any of those first four
1: i don't think you've ever said anything that's more true than costa rica is iowa cool uh,
0: well, we'll see what happens with the next rest of these. I did not assign anyone Penn State because I did not want to do that. Uh, Panama is Minnesota uh, in that Panama is just consistently pretty good. Uh, Minnesota, consistently pretty good. Kind of a boring answer, but uh, in terms of stylistically how they play, Nothing there. It's just a a an a uh an endorsement of pretty goodness. Uh Mexico is Ohio State. That one was a layup because Mexico is losing its grip on CONCACAF, just as Ohio State started to lose its grip on the Big Ten this season. They have brought me immeasurable stress and um upsetness in my life. And every time my team beats them, I run laps around my living room. The United States and Canada were a problem for me, Matt, because one was Michigan and one was Michigan State, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And on one hand, Canada should absolutely be Michigan because Canada just won the Big Ten, just as uh, Michigan just won the Big Ten, just as Canada is about to win World Cup qualifying. But at the same time, they're Michigan State because they're just they just kind of came out of nowhere i mean they had always had talent but they really came out of nowhere this qualifying cycle to turn into what they are uh they don't have as rich a soccer history of the as the united states uh who is more michigan in the scenario also because uh in recent years uh mexico has i mean not even recent years historically uh 20 20 or so years, uh, Mexico has just beaten the hell out of the United States and only recently has the United States uh, turned that on its head. So putting all that together, I went with the United States being Michigan and Canada being Michigan State. But do understand, good listener and also Matt, that I really, really, really fretted over that one. And Matt, if you have anything, any pushback, quibbles, anything of that nature with any of that, by all means, four is yours.
1: I, I think I agree for the reason you said, and I think I would add for the United States, much like Michigan, often very high expectations that very frequently fall woefully short of, of where they thought they would be.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I will say that once when it dawned on me that Mexico was Ohio state, like I, I, I just got real excited. So that, that that was a fun one. Um, Yeah, I I think that's it for this episode of the pod, Matt. Any any final things you would like to add before I do the sign-off?
1: I think we have emphatically covered mailbag questions last season, the coming season, and everything in between.
0: Yeah, so we're not going to do another podcast for about ah, six months. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening to this edition of the podcast. As always, make sure you're subscribed wherever you go and get your podcast. If you use Apple Podcasts, please go and leave us a five-star review. Please keep reading and supporting the site. best way to do that is to make sure you are going and buying yourselves some shirts. And make sure you're following us on all of our various social media channels. One last time, thank you very much for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.